In the sixth chapter of John, we find his version of the miracle we read about just a moment ago. John says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is called the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have but a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. I'd like to call the attention of those of you who are able to see it to the back window on this side of our sanctuary. The windows were all designed with purpose in mind, and That window has behind it the purpose of including symbols that remind us of times when Jesus used the power of God that was in him to meet human need. They are two related miracles. And the bottom are symbols that remind us of the miracle wrought at Cana of Galilee in the midst of a wedding ceremony where Jesus took plain water and by the power of God transformed it into the finest of wines and at the top, the loaves and the fish that speak to us of the miracle that we're going to be looking at today. This was clearly a miracle. The disciples who wrote of it did not intend this to be a, an allegorical story illustrating some truth that transcended the appearance of a miracle. This was a miracle. A miracle is an event that defines explana- defies explanation. For it occurs outside the parameters of our understanding of the ordinary working of things, an understanding that expresses those laws woven into the fabric of creation by our God. A miracle is not something that happens contrary to our expectations, like a last-second pass that wins a football game, something some of us were hoping for yesterday afternoon in South Bend. A miracle is not just an event that delights us in inexpressible ways, like the birth of a baby. A miracle is an event that takes place contrary to the laws of nature and science. The virgin birth of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. His walking on the Sea of Galilee and calming one of its most violent storms. His giving sight to the blind 
life to the dead, is feeding 5,000 with a handful of loaves and two fish. These are miracles. And if you're here as a person not yet able to call yourself a Christian, but if you say that you're looking for truth, and that's one reason that you're here, let me urge you to understand that these historical claims that the authors of the Gospels claimed mark the beginning and the substance and the end of Jesus' life are claims that demand your careful and your prayerful attention, and at the end of that attention is the truth that you're looking for. The setting for this particular miracle in space is a grassy plain along the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee at the base of a mountain not far from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a village situated near the point at which the cold mountain waters of the upper Jordan River emptied into the Sea of Galilee and the hometown of at least one of Jesus' disciples, Philip. It was not far away from Capernaum, the home of James and John and Peter and Andrew, which was the Lord's headquarters for his northern ministry. Near the site of this particular miracle, Jesus had once filled Peter's nets with fish. And another crowd had heard some of his most familiar parables for the first time. In other words, it was a locale familiar to Jesus and one in which his was a familiar face. And this is the setting in space for this particular miracle. Its setting and time, according to one of these authors, was shortly before the observance of Passover. You know I trust that Passover was an annual gathering required by the law of God in which his people remembered and celebrated their redemption from Egyptian captivity with words and sacrifices that would prefigure that greater redemption that Christ would purchase upon his cross. The setting and time for this miracle was also shortly after the Lord learned of the death by beheading of his cousin and his friend, John the Baptist. One of the most touching and insightful passages of Scripture is found in the 14th chapter of Matthew, just before that historian's relating of the miracle that we're looking at today. And there we read, when Jesus heard of John's death, he departed from there by a boat to a deserted place by himself. Here is a picture of a man deeply moved by the death of a friend and wanting to be alone. We're reminded by these few words describing the Lord's grief and his search for solitude of the fullness of his humanity, how thoroughly he experienced the joys and the sorrows, the triumphs and the victories that mark our lives. And in light of this, the invitation of Hebrews becomes all the sweeter, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith. For we have not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may, may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It was as Jesus was making his way toward the solitude that he longed for, that he was interrupted by this large crowd. It's interesting to note that this particular miracle is recorded in all 
four of the Gospels. And in those four accounts, the details are so identical as to remove any doubt that this is indeed records of the same events. In each of them, the number fed was about 5,000 men. And the root of the miracle, five loaves and two fish, is the same. In all of it, the people were made to sit down. Jesus offered a prayer of thanksgiving. And when the feast was over, there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Each of the Gospels mentions each of these details. But there are also differences in these accounts. And as when we mention the differences we find in the Bible in other contexts, these differences are not such that make one account conflict with others, but rather each of them gives us a fuller picture of what took place on this occasion. It is John alone who ties the timing of this miracle with the approach of Passover. And only Matthew mentioned that there were men and children present as well as men. It is only in Mark that Jesus' compassion for the people is described. And Mark waxed almost poetic when he says that Jesus saw them as being a sheep without a shepherd. And John is the only one to mention specific individuals. In his record of these things, we hear the voices of Philip and Andrew and learn of the presence of the boy whose Loaves and fish became the fodder for this great sign of the power that was so freely at Jesus' disposal. I'm going to call your attention to that boy for just a moment. We who enjoy studying the Bible, every once in a while, come upon a statement that just tantalizes us. It's an incidental but an unavoidable question that comes to us. Who was this boy and what was he doing there? His name is not given. His age and circumstances are not mentioned. There is no other identifiable reference to him anywhere in the New Testament. He appears briefly on the stage of sacred history, plays only an ancillary role in that history, and then leaves that stage without leaving a hint of his identity, his faith, or his future. I wish that I could tell you with certainty that he was there hungering and thirsting after righteousness, eager to see and hear Jesus, perhaps for the first time in his life, strangely but irresistibly drawn, charmed in his mind and spirit by all that he witnessed. And then when he heard Jesus express his concern for the crowd and saw no one else step forward, he approached the Lord with his simple lunch, knowing that it was but a little but wanting himself and all that he possessed to be of use to the Lord. I wish that I could tell you that, for if that were true, then the example of this boy would prompt all of us to wonder how much richer and more effective the work of the church would be if each of us were to bring the little entrusted to our care. Our devotion and desire, our silver and gold, our gifts and skills, and place them on the altar with the prayer that would God take, would take up our simple gifts offered in love and multiply them for his glory and our satisfaction. But since I'm not at all sure that this was the boy's motivation, I suppose I can't say any of the rest of that as well. But the question remains, what was he doing there? Several possibilities suggest themselves. One of them is that earlier that morning his mother had sent him to Kroger's to buy groceries. And he was on his way home when he saw the crowd gathering and 
youthful curiosity just caused him to hang around. Or perhaps he knew what was happening, that this celebrity named Jesus was in the area and went out to see for himself. But knowing that it might be a long day, he packed himself a lunch. Although five loaves and two fishes seems like an awfully big lunch, even for a growing boy. But there's another possibility to consider. I have an idea that this boy was there working the crowd, peddling his wares. The Jewish people have a reputation for being naturally inclined toward advancement in life. In fact, this inclination, coupled with their focused energies, their willingness to sacrifice, and strong family ties, has often made them successful in business and in the professions, and that success has sometimes resulted in the bias enmity of their neighbors. This was a Jewish boy. I heard recently of some young Gentiles who took chilled bottles of water to sell to the crowds during the Buick Open. I think this is exactly what this boy was doing. He or his parents saw a great opportunity with hundreds and thousands of pilgrims passing by on their way south to Jerusalem, that he had filled one bag with fish and another with bread and was hawking his wares to the passersby. He may ready, already have sold at least a part of what he took with him, but still he had these five loaves and these two fish that the Lord used for this great miracle. And I'm sure if this speculation conforms to reality, that the Lord would have paid the boy for his fish and bread. In 2 Samuel 24, we read of David, who was Jesus' forefather, about to secure a piece of land where sacrifices of God were to be offered. David said to its owner, I will buy it from you for a price but I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Obviously, anything that we say about this boy and his intentions is speculation. But as intriguing as such matters are, we have to be careful that they don't distract us from the larger significance of the miracle that is recorded here. This can happen in our Bible study, as I'm sure some of you know. We sometimes become so distracted by details of fleeting significance that we miss the larger, deeper truths that God has for us on the pages of his word. And in much of life, there needs to be a balance between those things that tantalize and those things which produce godliness. I mentioned that this miracle is recorded in all four of the Gospels. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that this is unusual. Not many of the Lord's teachings or acts are found in all of the New Testament histories of his life, causing us to wonder what, if any, significance we should attach to the fact that this story is found in all four of the Gospels. I suppose that someone might say, well, this is more important than the other stuff. If it's mentioned in all four of them, it is somehow more binding upon us than things that are found in only one or two or three of the Gospels. But to that, some thoughtful Bible student would respond by asking, is this event more important than Jesus' virgin conception that is recorded only by Matthew or by his birth that is found only in Luke or the wedding at Cana of Galilee or his washing his disciples' feet, which are found only once each in the Gospel of John? 
And it soon becomes obvious to us that the significance of some particular part of Scripture and the number of times it's repeated have no necessary relation to one another. If the repetition of something makes it more valuable, then the genealogies of Old Testament kings are more important to us than Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 because they appear twice in the Old Testament and that definition is found but once in the New. Now, the fact that this particular miracle is recorded in each of the Gospels makes it important for other reasons. It causes us to ask, what did these men see in this miracle that impressed them so deeply that each was led by the Holy Spirit to include it in his narrative? And beyond that, to wonder, what is it that that same Spirit wishes for us to see in this miracle? And it's often the case when we ask questions about the Bible, numerous possibilities suggest themselves. I'd like to look with you at three of those. One of these is almost incidental to the miracle itself and has to do with its social coincidence. And I use that word advisedly, I hope you know. The disciples were with Jesus when he learned of the tragic death of John the Baptist. They saw, and to some extent, they shared his grief. Many of Jesus' disciples were disciples of John before they met Jesus. They also knew of his weariness, his sorrow, and his desire for a quiet retreat away from the incessant demands of ministry. As men and as his friends, they understood as much as any man not divine could understand his need for solitude. And when a large crowd came to him as he was on his way to his quiet retreat, Mark tells us, in fact, that when they learned that Jesus was near, they ran to him. These men must have imagined and shared his frustration. The very thing he sought refuge from was suddenly cast upon him. There are times when we think that we know what we need. We know what is in our own best interests. Out in the world, a man is upset about something and he'll say, I need a drink. In similar mood, a woman might say, I need a cigarette. A man is frustrated by having to wait for a train on his way to his anger management class and he says to no one in particular, I'd just like to bash someone's head. We feel depressed and we feel a strange urge to go out and buy something. We're challenged. We want to run away and hide. In each one of these cases, pressed by the circumstances of life, we think that we know what is really best for us. Jesus the man, worn out by the continuous demands on his time and energy, angered by the horrible injustice of the execution of John, grieving the loss of this great servant of God and friend, thought that the best thing for him was to be alone. But in the wisdom and by the providence of his Father in heaven, as he was moving toward the solitude that he sought, he was met by this great crowd with their needs and their questions. Bowing to that wisdom, accepting that providence, Jesus abandoned his own needs and spent all day with these strangers teaching them of the kingdom of God, having to shout to be heard because of their number, moving among them, healing them, 
And finally, as the sun was setting, lifting in his hands these few loaves of bread in a prayer of thanksgiving and feeding them. There are times when you and I are aware that God is directing our paths. Times when we long for one thing, but God provides something very different. Times in which we sometimes learn that the changes and interruptions of life are in fact his blessings to us. Times in which we learn to rejoice. Seeing the wisdom of God the Father in directing the affairs of his Son, and later gratefully applying that understanding to the circumstances of their own lives, may be part of the reason that this miracle so deeply impressed these men whose memories are inscribed on the pages of God's word. Another possibility is that they were impressed by the power of God that Jesus held in his hands. That power is displayed in every miracle that Jesus wrought. But the disciples were more actively involved in this than in any other. At Cana, they were passive witnesses to the miracle. On the Sea of Galilee, they were passive beneficiaries of that power. They were on the outskirts of Nain when he gave life to the dead and had watched over and over as the lame hobbled up to Jesus and leapt for joy at his touch. But to each of these marvelous displays of the power of God, they were nothing but observers. But this miracle was different because he involved them in its work. They saw the meager supply available at its beginning, but felt their baskets grow heavy as they carried them toward the crowd. With each passing round of service, they were surprised that the weight of those baskets didn't seem to diminish. And when they passed those same baskets at the end of the feast, they were amazed that the amount of food left over exceeded by far the amount of food that was available at its beginning. This hands-on experience may have left them more deeply impressed by the mystery of the power of God in this miracle than any other. In the Gospels, we read that just a few days after this miracle, Jesus would ask these men, who do you say that I am? Their memories of this work and their participation in it almost certainly contributed to that joyful and confident exclamation, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And maybe it was their sense of the incredible power of God at work in this miracle, enhanced by the privilege of their involvement in it, that made this event such importance that it is included in each of the Gospels. Or perhaps it moved them deeply and they desired to include it because it expressed to them, and they hoped that it would express to others, the love of God the Father and the compassion of God the Son. There are many passages of Scripture that speak in general terms of the love and the compassion and the providence of God. In Psalm 145, our call to worship this morning, an ancient man of God said to him, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We call reading in the Old Testament of God's provision of manna and quail that grace Israel's track through the wilderness 
And in the New Testament, we read of the gentle healing touch of Jesus. As familiar with all of these things as we are, the authors of the gospel were even more so. But in this miracle, and in its setting in terms of the coincidence of time and need, they saw even more clearly the love and the compassion of the Father and of the Son. In the midst of his own grief, and wearied from the constant pressures of ministry, Jesus' heart turned away from his own needs and toward this mass of men that he saw as sheep without a shepherd. All that long day he emptied himself, teaching those whose minds ached for truth, healing those who brought their maladies to him, and finally, at the end of the day, satisfying the needs of their flesh with these loaves of bread and these fish. This is the Son of the God who awaits for his own at heaven's gate to brush the tears from our eyes. This is the Son of God who walks with us through the valleys that lead to that gate. This is the man of sorrows said to be acquainted with grief, the one who wept at Lazarus' dead grave, the one who has by his own suffering removed for us the sting of death the one who is himself a great comforter and in the Holy Spirit provides to his people another. This is the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. The men who witnessed this miracle watched Jesus, and they saw this self-emptying love on display on that day. Paul would later speak of that self-emptying love and calls us to reflect that love so richly lavished on us to one another. We've been looking together at a miracle performed by our Lord Jesus Christ that so deeply impressed his biographers that every one of it include a version of it in their chronicles. We've been wondering what it was that impressed them so deeply as to require its inclusion and have made three suggestions. Perhaps they were impressed by the wisdom of God displayed in its circumstances, a wisdom that transcends our own, that dictated that at a time in which the holiest of men earnestly believed that what he needed above all else was quiet and a retreat from people, knew that what he really needed was people. Maybe they were stirred by the mysterious workings of the power of God, a power they had glimpsed before, but this time came close to handling with their own hands. Or perhaps they were moved by the providential love of God, expressed as much of the self-emptying love of Jesus in his day-long ministry to this great crowd, responding to the needs of minds and souls as in their miraculous feeding at the end of that day. But whatever the reasons for the inclusion of this story in all four of the Gospels, there are lessons that you and I would do well to consider and apply to our lives for the glory of God. May he add the richness of his blessing to our contemplations. Let us pray. Our God, we have just read of an event at the end of which men who saw it stood with their mouths open in awe. We pray that this might be our reaction. 
We pray that this might not be for us a familiar story that we've read over and over and over, but may we, may we consider it as if we have never heard. May we wonder, who is this man who gave so freely and deeply of himself? Who is this man whose life was so well and wisely led by God the Father? Who is this man who had such power that he was able to take these simplest elements of daily diet and enlarge and multiply them to feed a crowd of thousands? And may we find ourselves with the authors of the gospel kneeling at his feet in awe and admiration and rising to serve him well in the world. We pray in his name. Amen.